The wind wakes us as we wander up the hill towards the makeshift altar. I shiver from the chill, imagining I hear the dead teeth a chatter. But of course, it's only the clatter of folding chairs snapping too. The cold coaxes us to bunch together, blankets clutched round our knees. I freeze, wondering if the family of doves waiting backstage is asking like I am, why are we here again? Then the choir begins, O oh, death, where is thy sting? O oh, grave, where is thy victory? And the morning sun blinks a time or two, burns through the lid of night to cast its fire-bright eye on a headstone nearby. It lingers long and warms the bronze angel poised there while I stare, remembering how spooky yet perfect this is, celebrating the resurrection among the dead. I listen for the whispers of Tafika and Dad who've gone ahead. Do their spirits join the festivities? Does the sun lift them as it rises? I don't know. But when the doves are set free, when they spread their white wings, something airy in me flutters, impatient for flight. And I am blessed to be a part of a church that allows me to wear flip-flops and an untacked shirt, and I, don't, I think I forgot to shave this morning, and still come in front of you all to deliver scripture. So thank you. And next week, those of you who come back, those disheveled individuals out there might be asked to come and speak <laughs> as well. I have a friend named Eddie Jones who recently lost his, his wife, Cushy. Um, didn't lose her, gave her to the Lord. And they had a plan before that, <laughs> his plan, their plan, to go to Jerusalem and to go, obviously, take a tour of, of the old world. And just the other day, I guess it was yesterday, he Facebooked me, or everybody, a picture of the tomb. And he says this, I was at the tomb three days ago, and guess what? He's not there. <laughs> this is what makes following him different from everyone else. First Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. The resurrection of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, 
he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the, all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. I believe that every day can be Easter. Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spice, bought spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. In a 1789 letter to the French scientist and revolutionary Jean-Baptiste Leroy, who said, our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. And of course, along came Will Rogers and reminded us that uh, taxes aren't always permanent. They can go up whenever Congress is in town. <clears throat> Franklin's wry remark points to a cynical side of life. Uh, the present teaches us hard knocks. We expect the world to be a hard place. We've already priced in the cost in life of loss and defeat. We recognize that forces larger than ourselves are going to take our money and then take our life. It's just part of the deal. But we also celebrate Easter. Now maybe we celebrate Easter because we have an enormous capacity for ambiguity in our lives. Or maybe we've defiantly resolved not to give in to the death and taxes cynicism. Maybe it's just tradition that we celebrate Easter. How did the early church make sense of this celebration? How, how did the first Christians 
come to terms with this amazing, implausible, confusing, frightening story that Jesus was no longer dead, but alive. Well, our reading from 1 Corinthians 15 serves as a commentary on the Mark 16 passage and provides us some insights. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing a long letter to a dysfunctional church about the central questions of faith and life and ethics. The traditional view of 1 Corinthians is that Paul's replying to previous correspondence about serious problems in the church. In this view, persons in the household of Chloe, chapter 1, verse 11, have tattled to Paul about how naughty the church has been, and now Paul is supposed to use his apostolic authority to fix the church. Having been in a previous life an overseer of many churches of different cultures, I can tell you with certainty that getting a letter tattling about someone's church mischief and then demanding you fix them is the most disempowering, disheartening, discouraging, and impossible thing you will ever experience in the church. So I've come over time to begin to reinterpret 1 Corinthians. Begun to rethink that Paul is not on an agenda about chastising the church over its laundry list of naughty bits. He is instead, if you read the letter closely, he's reminding the church of what is important in their unique setting and reminding this largely Gentile congregation of the commitments and covenants that were made at the end of the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15. He's reminding them of the letter that went out at the end of that story, a letter that said Gentiles can come to faith in Christ without having to become Jewish first. Everyone has direct access to Jesus. Everyone is welcome. But there are some things we'd like you to pay attention to. And Paul is reminding them of those things. He is seeking to renew the Corinthian Christian movement by focusing on the priority questions of our faith. First of all, Christology. Who is Jesus? And then missiology. What does Jesus want us to do? And then finally, ecclesiology. How does Jesus want us to do it? Way too often in the church, we reverse the order. We want to figure out how to do church first. And when we do that, and we haven't figured out who Jesus is for us, we end up with a mess. And so Paul begins with a, a, an imagination in, chapters, in chapter 110 to 421 about who Jesus is. Paul is at work constructing a view of Jesus as the foundation, 1 Corinthians 3.11. There's no other foundation than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Chapter 5 through chapter 8 are more missiological in content. In these chapters, they chronicle the various dysfunctions of the church. Now, Paul is no moral relativist here, but his point is not merely to correct the naughty behavior of the church. 
His point is to redefine what Jesus wants the church to do. Paul's a missionary, and he knows from his time in Corinth that the church must embrace a stringent sexual purity, chapters 5-7, through and a reasonable social flexibility, eating meat that may or may not have been offered to idols. You see, to live as a Corinthian was a term of slander in the ancient Mediterranean basin. The Corinthian culture accepted sexual promiscuity in every variety imaginable, and did so within a rigid hierarchy of religious, social, economic, racial, and gender categories. Paul is reminding the Corinthian church in these passages of the upside-down ethos of being Jesus' followers. The call to a life of sexual purity and social flexibility flew in the face of the dominant values of Corinth and sought instead to form a right-side-up, non-conforming kingdom in an upside-down and abusive culture. So the core of the letter, chapters 9 through uh, chapters 9 and 10, is then a, a reimagination of the church. How to be the church. And Paul unpacks this section with the, the twin ethic of freedom that Christ gives us, and yet living in the discipline of following him. That it's not a, it's, it's, it's an unfair choice to say, well, we're either free or we're slaves. We are both free in Christ and slaves to Christ. We are freed by His grace so that we may follow Him. Paul pivots back in chapters 11 through 14 to talk about a second missional priority, the ethic of sexual purity and relational fidelity coupled with flexible social engagement across a rigid caste system in Corinth needed to be wed in this new church to a life of public worship characterized by integrity, unity, and order that's anchored in love. The ethic that Paul is communicating to the church is when you gather for worship, love one another. All of this brings Paul to a final Christological crescendo in chapter 15, where Paul reminds us that all of this is tied together by the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection is the means by which God has made us able to be the church, to be missional agents of personal and social transformation. And the resurrection is the means by which God has made the life which is to come a certainty. So in chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, Paul begins this great crescendo by making three stunning assertions. First, Paul asserts that the resurrection is the gospel. The victory news of Jesus is not that he was a swell guy. The victory news of Jesus is not that he was a miracle worker. The victory news of Jesus is not that he was a great ethical teacher. Now, he was all three of those things and more. But the victory news of Jesus is that he defeated the power of evil. The Christian way is not merely an ethical system that points us towards greater personal holiness and social justice. 
The Christian way isn't only spiritual power allocated in ways that break the known laws of physical science when we pray hard enough. The Christian way isn't just a collection of aphorisms about how to be a nicer person. The Christian way is resurrection. Life after death. Life out of death. Life over death. Life conquering death. It is the risen Jesus that is our foundation, Paul says in verse 1. It is the risen Jesus who saves us, verse 2. And without the resurrection, our faith, Paul says at the end of verse 2, is merely vanity. An exercise in fantasy and wishful thinking. A figment of our imaginations. No resurrection? What's the point? Without Easter, what's the point? The resurrection is the gospel. Secondly, Paul proclaims that the resurrection is fact. Paul reminds the Corinthians of the historic gospel narrative. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and then rose. And he lists a series of appearances that begin with Cephas and end with Paul. Which, interestingly enough, also coincide with the beginning and end of the list of factions that are in the Corinthian church. All the little parties that are arguing with each other. One calls itself the party of Cephas. And another one there, the party of Paul. Well, Jesus appeared to all of them. None of the factions and cliques in the Corinthian church were outside the resurrection fact. And therefore, none of the factions mattered. All that matters, all that matters, all that matters is the resurrection. The reason we can name Jesus as Lord is because we can say Christ is risen. Paul proclaims that the resurrection is fact. Third, Paul declares that the resurrection is the starting point of grace. Now, Paul was late coming to the Christian party, and he was the baddest of the bad cops before coming to the party. But grace in the form of the risen Christ spoke to his life, and he was transformed from persecutor to preacher, from hater to lover. Paul encountered the risen Christ, and he was transformed. The disciples of Jesus who survived that horrible weekend of crucifixion and vigil and resurrection, they were also transformed from losers and powerless rogues raging against the Roman system. They were transformed by the risen Jesus into apostles of a worldwide movement who could stand up to the very men who killed their leader. They could speak truth to power and they could offer God's grace to everyone from every tribe and nation. The resurrection fueled their lives from Easter Sunday forward, and they were utterly transformed. These stunning assertions remind us that our faith is not in ourselves and in our capacity to do good. Our faith is defined by the stunningly improbable assertion 
that a provincial Jewish rabbi born over 2,000 years ago was God in the flesh, that he was assassinated by a conspiracy of local and imperial leaders who worried that his message would upset their world, and most importantly, that this lowly rabbi, God in the flesh, defeated death, conquering its ability to be the final word in our lives. Pretty doggone audacious. But the Christian way is an audacious path. We dare to believe that the essence of religion is that God seeks us. We dare to believe that the resurrection is the center point of our faith and life and witness. We dare to believe that all of history is redeemable because of God and Christ. But if we're honest, our beliefs about the resurrection don't always square with our practice of the resurrection. Let's face it, we get way more excited about Christmas than we do about Easter. At Christmas, we celebrate gifts. As in, I'm going to get a gift. (laughs) At Easter, we're challenged by the transformational power of new life. And to be honest, most of the time, we'd rather get a gift than be transformed. Our challenge as the Church of Jesus Christ in the Western postmodern world of the first quarter of the 21st century is not relevance. We are not called to be relevant as a church. We are called to be transformed as a church. But we want to be relevant, so we hyphenate and caffeinate our Christian practice. And we forget that the only claim to relevance we have is the mystery of faith that Christians proclaim in the memorial acclamation of the Eucharist liturgy. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. So this morning, some questions for reflection. First of all, whose, whose gospel do we proclaim? Is the good news we speak and live the the great American cure-all that if we just worked hard enough, all would be well? Is our good news that if we were only smart enough, spiritual enough, good-looking enough, skinny enough, savvy enough, rich enough, or connected enough, life would be on our side? Or is our gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, the assassinated one who death could not contain? What gospel do we proclaim with our lives? Secondly, do we live as if the resurrection actually happened? We live amidst a vast marketplace of spiritualities. Post-modernity has wreaked as much havoc on secularism as it has on Christianity. Spirituality is everywhere. You can pick whatever smorgasbord of spiritual practices and theologies you want, and somebody will say, yay and amen. But how does the resurrection form us? How does the resurrection shape the way you and I live in the world, the way you and I relate to our spouses, the way you and I relate to our friends, the way you and I work in the workplace? How does the resurrection 
shape the way we are. The fishermen, tax collectors, cynics, and sons of thunder that made up Jesus' disciples became champions of personal holiness and social justice after the, after the resurrection. They confronted the powers with the truth that Caesar was out of his league. Only Jesus is Lord. Do we live as if Christ is risen indeed? Or have we become satisfied with Jesus as my boyfriend? Third, is the resurrection our grace? See, the resurrection transforms. How's that whole transformation thing going? Does the resurrection empower us with a sense of faith in mystery, hope in the coming kingdom, and love for everyone, including our enemies? Or is the resurrection simply one more thing on the church calendar that we do because we ought to? The resurrection matters. The resurrection transforms. And we confess that that truth when we choose to follow Jesus daily in life. Death and taxes no longer matter when we confess the resurrection. One more thing. Pope John Paul II, quoting from the early church father Augustine, said it this way, do not abandon yourselves to despair, for we are an Easter people, and Alleluia is our song. Let's pray. Alleluia. We sing it in our hearts and with our voices, for we are a people who live not just with the hope of resurrection, but with the certainty of it. You are alive, Jesus. And because you're alive, so are we. And we thank you for your life given anew that broke the power of evil and its control over our lives. Be our grace and teach us to proclaim the good news of the resurrection as if it happened. Amen.